here in First Timothy chapter 3, Paul deals with two offices in the church, that of elder or overseer and deacon. We looked at the first part last week, and that is the part that dealt with elders. And I would just remind you of two things from last week. First of all, that this letter is primarily corrective more than it is instructive. Now, obviously when you're correcting something, you have to give instruction. But, for example, with the matter of elders, they had elders already. Paul is not dealing with a situation where he's like, okay, you have no elders, this is how you get elders. No, they had elders, and the elders were part of the problem, and that's why he's writing, and he's writing to correct the situation there. So, uh, what Paul writes here is not, no elders, this is how you choose them. It's like you have elders, and you need to make sure that they are the right kind of elders, or perhaps you need to get rid of them. The second thing that I would remind you of is the principle that we learned last week from this passage. Remember, we're looking at how is the faith to be passed on to the next generation. The principle that we find, I think, in the first seven verses is this, that the qualifications for Christian leadership may be quite different from what we expect and very different from what the world says about leadership. That is, Christian leadership may be, in fact, very very different. And that's why, as I mentioned last week, I'm really struck by what Paul does not mention when he talks about the qualities or the qualifications of an elder. By the way, just to remind you, he doesn't talk about the duties of an elder, sort of wish he had, but he's not instructing, he's correcting. He doesn't tell us what they're supposed to do. He says these are their qualifications. And he says nothing about personality. Got to have a good personality. Need to be extra. Nothing of that. Nothing about personal charisma, speaking ability, that they're dynamic or not. Or their personal appearance, their physical appearance. None of this comes up whatsoever. When we look for someone to be an elder in the church, it requires that we look for the qualities that reflect a grace-filled life. Not something that our society, which is driven by consumerism, desires, you know, the customer is always right, or by a celebrity-driven public forum. We want someone who has a certain flair, someone that will be proud to say, oh, this is our elder. Uh, He's quite dynamic or he's quite successful. Uh, No, we look for someone whose life is filled with grace. I'm reminded of something I heard years ago from Oz Guinness. He said, if a man is drunk on wine, you'll kick him out of the church. If he's drunk on money, you'll make him an elder. Um... That, I think, is very much, I think, a world-driven view. Uh, both, by the way, in the, in the first seven verses, uh, an elder is not to be someone who is drunk, is not to be involved with drunkenness, but neither is he to be a lover of money. So to be drunk on wine or to be drunk on money, both disqualify someone from being an elder. This is a very, you know, To say that someone who is drunk on money can be an elder is quite different from what Paul says to Timothy. Now we come to the position of deacon. And, well, let's read the passage first and then let's just talk about what a deacon is. Beginning in verse number 8, here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. 
They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Now, when I say the word deacon, I think most of us have a certain preconception of what a deacon is. But what is interesting is that I suspect much of what we think we know about deacons may, in fact, be incorrect. If you were to ask someone who knows the New Testament, who are the first deacons in the church? They'd say, oh, that's easy. In Acts chapter 6, the the seven men who were chosen, and if you remember the story, uh, the widows were being neglected, and they came to the apostles and said, listen, the, the, the widows who have no one to feed them, what's going on? They're not being fed. And the apostles responded, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. In other words, we're not here to serve bread to widows. There's nothing wrong with that, but that was not, if you wish, what an apostle was to do. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Seven men were chosen. Stephen is one of them. Tom spoke about this when he gave his great defense in front of the Sanhedrin, but they're not called deacons. They are never called deacons. In fact, later on in Acts chapter 21, they are referred to simply as the seven. So what is a deacon? How are we to understand this? Well, I think it might be better for us to see how Paul used the word in his writings. It is a favorite term of him, of his to describe himself, his ministry, and the ministry of those with him. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, Uh, What, after all, is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants, that is, deacons, the word in Greek is diakonos, through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each his task. In 2 Corinthians 3.6, he has made us competent as ministers, deacons of the new covenant. In fact, look ahead here. Um, The King James translates the word that comes into English as deacon, diakonos, 20 times it is translated as minister, eight times as servant, three times as deacon. So that is, the majority of the times we see the word in Greek that comes across as deacon, it doesn't, it isn't translated as deacon, but as minister or as a servant. In Romans 16, 1, Um, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Cancria. Colossians chapter 1, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant, a deacon, a diaconos. And then later on in Colossians chapter 4, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. That is, a faithful deacon. And then in this book itself, in the next chapter, uh, if you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. So I think in some ways this makes our task a bit more difficult because the, the translators have translated here in verse number eight, deacon, and everywhere else it's minister or servant. So how are we, how are we to understand this? 
I think in many ways it's like the word prophet or the title prophet or the word teacher. If I say to you prophet or if I say to you teacher, do you think position or do you think function? I think with teacher we would say function, obviously. If somebody's a teacher, yeah. Prophet, uh, you know, they might, that we might say Jeremiah was a prophet, capital P, prophet, so that's a position. Or, but it was his function. He functioned as a prophet. Deacon is the same way. The word that comes across as deacon, I think it speaks of function as well as the role or the, the position of the person. So in Philippians chapter 1, in the first verse, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus and Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. seem that Philippians 1, chapter 1, verse 1, is the one place outside of our text today that speaks of deacon as a position. Okay? (coughs) Having said that, I think our, our passage today does speak of a position. In the church, there were to be elders and there were to be deacons. And as with elders... There are to be qualifications. And in fact, if you look at the list of qualifications, and I'll go through them briefly, in many ways, they are very similar to what we require of elders. It begins with worthy of respect. This is in line with what he wrote earlier. They must be above reproach. He must have a good reputation with outsiders. That's what we say of elders. Well, an elder or a deacon must be worthy of respect. All of these Point to observable behavior. God looks on the heart. People can't. So how is it that a person lives their life? An elder or a deacon must live such a life that he is worthy of respect, not simply when he's in church with other people, but with unbelievers, when he's in the marketplace, when he's at job, when he's in the neighborhood, wherever he is, he is seen as worthy of respect. Now, Paul follows this up with three negatives, and the NIV is not helpful here because it misses it. Um, not double-tongued. The uh, NIV has sincere. It simply means that this is someone who doesn't say one thing to one person and another thing to another person. They speak the truth. Not addicted to much wine. This matches what is said in verse number three. Not given to drunkenness with regard to elders. Not greedy for dishonest gain. One is not to love money to the point of questionable integrity. That money becomes more important to them than anything else, including their integrity or their reputation. And then there is the positive qualification. They must keep uh, keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. We saw in chapter 1 that the elders who had gone astray did not have a clear conscience. In fact, they were running away from a clear conscience. So when Paul says a deacon must have a clear conscience, he's correcting something. It's like, this is mistaken. 
a deacon, in fact, should have a clear conscience and must stand for the truths of the faith. Again, the NIV, I must confess, we use the NIV here, but in this particular passage is, is not helpful uh, in a lot of ways. The word that is used is found throughout Paul's writings. It's the word mystery. In fact, we will come up to it in verse number uh, 16. The mystery of godliness is great. And why they chose to say deep truths is really beyond me. A mystery is not a secret. It is something that has been hidden in God, and now God has revealed it in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And someone who is a deacon is someone who holds on to these truths. He's not simply, this is my title, I'm deacon, and it doesn't really matter what I believe, this is what I do. No. He was to be someone who, in fact, held on to the gospel deeply. Then we come across something new. In verse number 10, they must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. Again, the NIV fails us here because it leaves out the word also. If you look at the English Standard Version or the King James, it has the word also, which means elders are to be tested as well. Test the elders, test the deacons. Having said that, what is involved in testing? How do you test someone to be a deacon? Or how do you test someone to be an elder? And who gets to do this? Is there a time of probation? That you're on probation, we're going to check you out, and then if you pass the test, then we'll let you become a deacon. Um, remember, this is a corrective letter. It would seem that what Paul intends is that you don't say, okay, we want you to be a deacon, but you're going to be on probation. But in fact, as we come to church, as we deal with one another, we observe each other's lives, and then it becomes very clear, well, this person here is qualified to be an elder, or this person is qualified to be a deacon. Their behavior has been approved. That is, that people have noticed them. They have looked at them, and they say, yes, this person is qualified. Um, as Paul puts it, if there's nothing against him, let him or let them serve as deacons. Then we come to verse number 11. And those of you who have been here for a while know that when we go verse by verse, we don't skip anything. If we could, we would skip this verse. Because it is, I think in the whole chapter, the most difficult verse. In the same way then, uh, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. You will notice that, at least in the NIV, there is a footnote that instead of their wives, it has deaconesses. This is something that scholars have puzzled over for centuries. Is Paul saying, these are the qualifications of a deacon, and these are the qualifications of his wife? If that's the case, that's really strange, because why not the qualifications of the wife of the elder? That I think that would seem to be more in line because he's a leader in the church, whereas a deacon is someone who is a servant. Um, I personally think that it refers to women. And the word that is used in Greek is not can be translated as wife, but also can be translated as woman. And again, the NIV chooses to make it wife, and I don't think that's that's the way it is. But in either case, whether you think it's the wife of a deacon or a deaconess herself, Paul tells Timothy that these women are to have the following, follow, following qualities, and they match the deacon. Worthy of respect, 
not malicious talkers, that is, not double-tongued. They are to be temperate, not given to much wine. And they are to be trustworthy in everything. Okay? They are faithful, they are to be faithful in all things. As we continue in our study of First Timothy, you will see when we get to chapter 5 and then when we get to Second Timothy, that the women who are causing problems in the church in Ephesus do not fulfill these qualifications. They are, in fact, malicious. They are not temperate. They cannot be trusted. And so Paul says, listen, if you're going to have women who are going to serve as servants in the church, they must have these qualities. And then in verses 12 and 13, Paul comes back to the matter of the deacons. And this is what makes some people think that verse 11 is about the wives of deacons. Uh, verses 12 and 13, a deacon must be the husband of but one wife. Is that verse number 11? <clears throat> and great assurance, I'm sorry, and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing with great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. If what Paul is writing in verse number 11 is of their wives, then we can see this as sort of a repeating of what was said about the elders in verses, uh, in the first seven verses. But what if Paul is talking about women? as deaconesses and not wives. And I think that's what he's doing. Then verses 12 and 13 are an afterthought. And let's let's stop and think of it. We believe the Bible to be the word of God. But does that mean, in fact, that Paul couldn't say, oh, yeah, I forgot to mention this, and then and then he will come to it. That, in fact, happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And it's... It's a passage that I love because it gives us insight into Paul's humanity. Let me read to you. I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Then the NIV has it in parenthesis, verse 16. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize. So Paul is writing, he's dictating the letter. That's how they did it in the ancient world. They didn't write letters the way we do. There's a scribe there, a secretary, and he's talking. And he's like, listen, I only baptized uh, Crispus and Gaius. Uh, and, and I'm glad because if I did, then you'd say, well, I was baptized by Paul. I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Stephanus, the household of Stephanus. I also baptized them. And, and there may be somebody else, and I don't remember. But anyway, it shows the humanity of Paul as he writes this. The writer of Scripture is not inspired. The writing itself is inspired. So Paul is talking about deacons, and then he talks about deaconesses, and then it's as as though he says, oh yeah, I forgot. In terms of qualities, they must also be the husband of one wife and rule their house as well. It is as though he forgot to mention it, and now he puts it in uh, afterwards. I have no problem with that. I don't think it does any violence to Scripture. It shows us the humanity of the people who wrote it. So, when he comes back to the matter of deacons, he deals with their wives and their children. And then, in the last verse, he wraps it up, um, as he did for elders, which points to having a good reputation in the community and in the church. As Paul wrote in verse number 7, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders. This, I think, is the excellent standing he talks about in verse 13. But what about great assurance of their faith in Christ Jesus? What is Paul saying? 
that those who have served well gain. Well, the word in Greek for serve well comes from the same root word as deacon. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament, interestingly enough. And so what I think Paul is saying is that if a person, that is a man or a woman, a deacon or a deaconess, does as he or she should, in line with the qualifications listed, he or she will gain both an excellent standing as well as an assurance that he or she is in Christ Jesus. Now we come to verses 14 and 15. And it's kind of odd that these verses are here because I would have put them at the beginning of the book. Now Paul tells the purpose of his writing this letter. Look, if you would, at verses uh, 14 and 15. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. You may remember that in the ancient world, usually they wrote, this is the author, I, Paul, I'm writing, recipient to you, Timothy, greetings, grace and peace to you, and then oftentimes a word of thanksgiving, I thank God for you, and then the letter begins. With Paul, we have, yes, Paul, yes, Timothy, yes, the greeting, and that's it. He jumps right into what he's doing in this letter. He's trying to correct the situation there. And what he does in the first chapter is deal with false teachers, in chapter 2 with public worship, and now in chapter 3 with the lives, with the qualifications of the leaders in the church. Now here at the end of this, now he says, oh, by the way, this is why I'm writing this letter. It seems rather strange. He gives us a further statement of the purpose of the letter and why the church should listen to what he's doing. I find verses 14 and 15 nothing short of amazing. And I'll tell you why. Because Paul talks as though he's going to go back to Ephesus. Well, if you know the New Testament at all, in Acts chapter 20, Paul is going to Jerusalem. And he calls for the elders in Ephesus to come to Miletus, because he's going to get on a ship and go there. And they have this very emotional farewell. It's one of the most emotional passages in the New Testament. He had spent three years there teaching. I would dare say that most of these men were converted under his ministry, and now they're elders, and he's leaving. And it says in verse number 37, They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. This is it, folks. I, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'll probably either be killed there or or end up in Rome. No intention whatsoever to go back to Ephesus. And now in this letter, he's like, "Um, yeah, I'm planning to be there. I hope to be there. Well, this gives us insight that the, the situation in Ephesus must have been pretty bad. If after this dramatic farewell scene, Paul's like, uh, I think I better go back because of what's going on there. He had, in fact, sent Timothy ahead. And he's writing this letter to Timothy to help him straighten out things. But he plans to go there himself. And, and so what's going on? What is the issue? He says, so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. The metaphor here is family or household. Not house, as in the King James, which points to a building like... So some people might say, oh, what he's talking about is when you come to church, you're supposed to act in a particular way. 
No, you're part of the family of God. You're part of the household of God, and this is how you're supposed to behave. Um, by the way, the, the fact that we're part of a family has been hinted at in the qualifications of both elder and deacon, that they are supposed to manage their own household well, their children. Because if they can't manage their household, how can they manage the household of God? So the metaphor of family, I think, is very much there. God is our father. We are brothers and sisters. The apostles are stewards. They are those who are in charge of the household. If we belong to God's household, then certain behavior is expected. Um, If you want to put it negatively, certain behavior is not to be tolerated. If you belong to the people of God, then this is the way you're supposed to act. Then Paul shifts his metaphors from household to building. The church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Church does not refer to building here. It refers to the people of God. The language we find here is that of temple. Pillar, foundation, living God. You might say, living God doesn't sound like temple. Bear with me. Paul has written of this to other congregations. That the church is God's temple. 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? And 2 Corinthians 6. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Ephesians 2. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. There it is. Members of God's household. Built on the foundation, that's from 1 Timothy, of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. To him, the whole building is joined together, or in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So when we say the place of the living God, Old Testament language, but now New Testament language, that means church. That means the people, the temple, the congregation together. That we as the people of God, this is where God lives. So with these two images, that of family and that of temple, Paul expresses his concerns. The behavior of the people in Ephesus is is not right. They have bad theology, which results in bad behavior. But there's something else. Why does Paul care how they act? Listen, if you're a Christian, if you're saved, you're going to heaven, who cares how you act? Seriously. I mean, why should anyone care? Because God has, in fact, entrusted to us the gospel. That's why our behavior matters. This is where we come to verse number 16. This is the mystery of godliness. This is the gospel. Look, if you would, at verse number 16. Beyond all question, we cannot question this. The mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. This is the message that has been given to God's people. By the way, there are some people who believe that this is actually a hymn or part of a hymn from the first century. Um, What is Paul saying here? 
That which was hidden in God has now been revealed in Jesus and by the Spirit. And this is the gospel just put out in a poetic form. God appeared in the body. Without question, he's talking about the incarnation. Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit, and this is seen as his resurrection. Um, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, God raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And then was seen by angels. This one's a little tougher. This is a little, little more difficult. I think it refers to the fact that Jesus upon his ascension, is worshipped by angels. It will be mentioned later on in the hymn. He was preached among the nations. The Ephesians are proof of that. And they believe the gospel, which is the next thing. Jesus was believed on in the world. Even the Gentiles have believed on Jesus, the Messiah. And then he was taken up into glory. This points to the ascension. This is the gospel that has been committed to God's people, and therefore their behavior matters. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, what is the principle? I mean, in this series, we're looking at principles that will enable us to keep the faith alive and to pass it on to the next generation. What is the principle or are there principles in this particular passage? I would suggest two to you for you to think about. The first is, just as there are qualifications for Christian leadership, There are qualifications for Christian service. Um, For all the debate about the function of the deacon, there can be no no question about his or her qualifications. Simply put, servants or those who serve must consider how they behave and what they do. This is perhaps not the best example I could use, but there was a time in my life when I worked for Burger King. And we had to wear what I thought were rather silly uniforms. But one of the things that we were told, if you ever go to McDonald's and order McDonald's and you're wearing a Burger King uniform, you will be fired. Well, that's what it makes sense, doesn't it? Because in a sense you're a part of the household of Burger King, there's certain behavior that is to be expected. In the same way, if you are going to be someone who serves God's people, uh, you can't say, hey, I'm just a servant. It doesn't really matter how I live just so I serve. No, it, it does matter. There are to be qualifications for those who serve as well as for those who lead. I think we would have no problem saying leaders must be qualified. I think we might we might not be so comfortable saying servants must be qualified. I think Paul wants the Ephesians to know, because they're reading this over Timothy's shoulder, yes, the elders are to meet certain qualifications, and so are those who serve. So are the deacons. Now, a part of me gets really nervous when I start talking like this. Because it seems like it might lead to legalism. That a good Christian is supposed to live or behave this particular way. But in truth, the gospel is to be seen in our behavior. And so if I am a Christian, I'm not to be double-tongued. I'm to speak the truth. Is that legalism? 
If someone says, um, listen, as a Christian, I think you should tell the truth. Oh, boy, there you go, putting rules on people, telling them what to do. No, I think if we have embraced the truth of the gospel, we should speak truthfully. I don't think that that is too much to ask. The standards for such behavior are to be biblical, not man-made. That's where legalism comes in. Plus, in an age when uh, people worship things like efficiency, we must take care not to take on worldly notions of what it means to be a servant or to serve. In the ancient world, a servant was almost nothing. Where someone, you know, no eye contact, you have to look down. Um, This is a worldly view of servanthood. Can a deacon or deaconess not in fact serve looking you in the eye, face-to-face contact? Um, we're not told of the duties of these people, but we're told of their qualifications, and they are to be people filled with grace. So that's the first thing that I would have you consider, that there are qualifications for Christian leadership, and there are for Christian servanthood as well. The second thing I would suggest to you is that all of God's people, all of those of God's household, are to be servants. See, I think some people might read 1 Timothy chapter 3 and say to themselves, well, I'm glad I'm not an elder. I'm glad I'm not a deacon because I don't want to live up to those qualifications. Um, You will remember that the two lists are very similar. So it doesn't matter whether you're talking about being a deacon or being an elder, the qualifications are pretty much the same. I am convinced, and not simply because I'm an elder or the pastor, I am convinced that we all, as God's people, should strive to meet these qualifications. That's why I take verse number 11 as referring to women. Because I don't think Paul is writing chapter 3 just to the guys. Okay, Guys, this is how you're supposed to act. I think in verse number 11, he brings women into the discussion, and they are to have these qualities as well. No Christian should ever say, I don't want to be worthy of respect. I want to be double-tongued. I want to indulge in much wine. Uh, I want to pursue dishonest gain. I want to be a malicious talker. I want to be intemperate. I don't want to be trustworthy. I don't think any Christian should ever say that. In fact, if you look at the qualities that Paul lays out, I don't think that they're extremely demanding. I mean, I think this is what we should expect of God's people. Um, And why should we care? Why should we care about qualifications? Because we have been entrusted with this precious treasure, the gospel, the truth. Stop and think a minute. If you have something that's very precious, do you, and you have to pass it on to someone, Are you going to be concerned about that person's trustworthiness? Yeah, I I think so. I I mean, if I can't trust you, why would I entrust you with something? In the same way we have been entrusted with the gospel, it's not a real stretch to assume that we should be trustworthy and not malicious and not double-tongued and not intemperate. I don't think that that is asking too much. We are members of God's household. We're part of his family. 
And he has conveyed to us, he has entrusted to us this great truth, the gospel. So it does matter how we behave. It does matter how we act. And this is to be passed on to the next generation. Sadly, some generations of the church have dropped the ball. And in many ways, I don't blame them. Because the persons passing the ball on to them, the the people passing the gospel on to them, were not trustworthy. They were double-tongued. They were intemperate. They did not match what Paul said. And so when they handed over to their kids, their kids said, what am I going to do with this? It had apparently no evidence in your life, so why is this precious? Why should I care about this? And they leave the church. And I think rightly so. If, in fact, we are to keep the faith alive and we are to pass it on to the next generation, our lives must be filled with grace and our children must be able to see in us the gospel lived out. And then we can hand it over to them. We can pass it on to them. And they can carry it on and then pass it on to their children and their children's children and so on. I think chapter 3 is a chapter that a lot of Christians feel like that's not about me. That's about other people. That's about elders and deacons. And I would suggest to you, you're absolutely wrong. It's about all the people of God. This is how we are supposed to behave. Let's pray together. Father, particularly in our age, we we like all the benefits, but we want no responsibility. And so, in terms of the gospel, we love eternal life, the gift of your spirit, the privilege of prayer. We like when you answer our prayers. We're not so keen on the responsibilities and sort of chafe against the idea that there's certain behavior that is expected of us, that, that smacks of legalism. When in fact, if we are your children, you are our Father, then we are to be like you. Otherwise, how would people know that we are your children? And if you're going to entrust us with the great gift of the gospel, then we should be trustworthy, should be temperate, not be about money or pleasure. Neither should we think, well, that's, that's for the elite in the church. That's for leadership or for servant. And that does not include me. It should include every one of us. That by your grace, our lives would be filled with grace. And our behavior would reflect that. And not simply when we're together at church, but every moment of every day. May we think about these things in the days to come. I thank you that you've brought us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.